Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The following podcast contains themes some listeners may find upsetting. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Bob Johnson about his experience working as a psychiatrist in Parkhurst, the maximum security prison on the Isle of Wight. This lively discussion looks at Bob's meaningful work in unblocking frozen terror and his success in reducing violence in the prison. My name is Bob Johnson. I'm a consultant psychiatrist, retired. And Bob, we met, I think it's pushing on maybe 15 or 18 years ago now. And I was very struck by the work that you were doing um, or had done in Parkhurst. And you told me many a tale of trauma and working with serial killers and everything that when I was in my early 20s just utterly fascinated me. And I remember leaving your house one day with about 10 books in my hands that you'd said, read this, read this, read this. So can you first of all explain to me a bit about your career and what led you to become a psychiatrist first? I, uh, I was always interested in psychology and psychiatry and uh, I did my preclinical uh, medical training in Cambridge and the third year, which I had to do for the degree, uh, I finished my clinic, uh, medical studies. So the third year I did in psychology and it was called experimental psychology and it was boring. It was terrible. The, the perception was good, visual vision and so on. But the, um, as, as for studying consciousness, they studied rats, for goodness sake. So I then went into general medicine, always wanted to do psychiatry. Um, and I had a brilliant initiation in psychiatry in a hospital on the outskirts of London, uh, Woodford Green, where they were doing the, what they called a therapeutic community. So the mind is the organ of socializing and uh, the ward meetings every morning, everybody was there. The ward cleaners all sat around, all contributed. That was in 1963. And subsequently that whole um, way of going on died out about 1980. It's, it's, it's existing now, but very rudimentary. So we went to the States for two years, and I worked in a, uh, a large mental hospital in New York State, had some training in psychoanalysis, had some training in neuro advanced neurology. And uh, we came back in uh, 1965, 
and I worked for two years in a psychiatric ward in a general hospital. I made a resolution, never work in a large institution. So this was a general hospital with two psychiatric wards, and I was wonderful because I, I was only middle-ranking doctor, but the consultant was a lazy sort of chap, and uh, he came up once a week or something, and I had run the place as far as my patients were concerned. That was wonderful. However, the problem was I'd always been opposed to electric shock treatment, and so I deflected everybody came through my door away from it. And he twigged this and tore me off a strip, said, you're not a team player, you're not this, you're not, you don't do electric shock treatment. And I had been shortlisted for very prominent posts uh, up in the University of Newcastle, for example. And then after this session, I wasn't shortlisted for the backwards. I wasn't given any. I'm not a team player, so my references were just... A... And that's also known as electrocompulsive therapy, ECT, isn't it? Yes, electroshock therapy. It's actually giving somebody another disease, in that case, epilepsy, to try and cure the depression. And it's barbaric. It's equivalent, in my view, to the ducking stool in the old uh, medieval days. Yeah, and for the benefit of our listeners, it's sending shockwaves through your temples? Oh, yes. It, and, it, and it actually gives you an epileptic fit. And if you don't have an epileptic fit, they say it's not working, so they give you another one. So, <laughs> so I, couldn't, I couldn't get a job in psychiatry. I had, uh, had uh, uh, three children, and we moved five times in six years, whatever it was. So I moved into general practice, which I could do in those days. There weren't all the uh, training and paraphernalia. So I moved into general practice in, um, um, a rural, uh, in a rural industrial area of Lancaster just on the outskirts of Ashton Line, outskirts of Oldham. And I was there for 20 years. And I had to learn about tonsillitis and back pain and piles and all these things in general practice, which I did. But I was always interested in the mind, always interested in emotions. So uh, eventually I set up single-handed. I was, I was in a partnership of, of three and then after four years, I set up single-handed. And so I could have total control of my timetable. So on a Wednesday morning, after the main surgery, I had a special clinic for uh, interesting people who I wanted to give an extra time to, half an hour, an hour. And um, after I'd been there 19 years, there was a 40-year-old, we we'll call her Flora. She, 40-year-old, she was in my practice nurses clinic for blood pressure, overweight and stress. And the nurse called me in and said, can you adjust these tablets for the blood pressure? So I adjusted the tablets and I said to the person, I said, look, um, there's probably an emotional factor behind these. Would you be interested in exploring it? Uh, yes, she said. I didn't know what I was looking for and she didn't. But she came in um, every Wednesday morning for an hour. And um, I knew childhoods were important, but I didn't know quite why. So I asked about the childhood indeed, and uh, we got nowhere. Round and round and round. Uh, every now and again, she'd go coy, <laughs> and then book. So I thought, well, we're not making any progress. And this was, oh, 30 sessions or something, out, something outrageous. <laughs> So I said, all right, we'll cut it down to half an hour. I've got so much more to do. I've got all my research to do and everything. Half an hour. So we cut it down to half an hour. She was very amenable. And then, guess, at the end of the half hour, just on 25 minutes, she said, oh. And I said, bonk. And I thought, 
this isn't working. <laughs> Something has to change. All right, we'll go back to 60 minutes, right? Now then, now then, what she must have concluded was that I wasn't going away. I was going to there for the long haul. Whatever happened, I was going to stick with it. And you must have been working with her by this point for what, about a year? Uh, I, 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 the figure in my mind is 33 sessions, and that was weeks, weeks. So that's 33 weeks, yes, best part of the year, best part of the year. Which is terrible for me. I mean, normally dingling, ding, ow, dingling, ding, ow. Yeah. So 33, and I thought, but I, I knew there was something fishy going on, see? Because she came in and said, um, I can't blame her father. I can't blame her father. And I would say, well, I, I knew her father. He was part of my family practice. And he died four years before. So I kept saying, that's not logic. How can you not blame him when he isn't here anymore? So um, we, we, we went on, and as I say, we had this interlude and, and then came back again. And then she said, did I ever tell you the time when I went upstairs, my mother took me upstairs at the age of six with my brothers and sisters, put furniture up against the door, and my father came up the stairs with a hatchet and broke holes in the door and said, I'll bloody kill you all. And then he clapped because you were drunk. I said, no, I don't think you did. <laughs> right, we've been going all this time. So what does that tell you? That tells you that she couldn't tell me, she couldn't tell herself. That's the breakthrough. The, the life and death threat at the age of six closed it off. The way she survived at six was saying, it's not happening. I will not let it happen. And so she couldn't think about it. She couldn't then say it stopped happening. Okay, and she came to you presenting with a physical ailment of... Obesity, blood pressure, stress, yes. Right, and so it was your job to peel back the layers of the onion and get to the underlying emotional mind piece in order to unlock the physical health problem. Yeah, I, I didn't know what it was. I knew there was something funny. <laughs> I knew yeah. something fishy. But what I didn't know was that she wasn't telling herself. If she can't tell herself, she can't tell me. Now, if she doesn't tell me, I can't treat her. I can treat the blood pressure, blah, 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 but I'm not treating the central problem. The central problem is she's going to die with this hatchet from a dead man, OK? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Now, once we're looking at it from that point of view together, that's fine. But up to that point, she's not going to know what it was. She doesn't know. I, my job is to find out. Right? My job is to find out what's wrong. So I ask her what's wrong, and she cannot tell herself, she cannot tell me. But because of the prolonged, that's why I went into the history, prolonged um, precursor, she thought, must have thought to herself, well, this man's not going to go away. Do you think, in a way, she was just hoping you'd give her some medication so she could get on? And Because she stayed coming to the session, so that's quite interesting. She kept turning up. She kept turning up. And, and she would open a bit and then close, open a bit and then close. Um, looking back, what she was doing was getting enough courage to look at the hatchet. So it was at that point that that was a pivotal moment in your career. If you think about it, you go and see the doctor, and you say, I've got a pain in the leg. So the doctor says, did you fall over? I did not, I did not, right? You, you, the, the, the patient gives you this, this wonderful phrase, listen to the patient, she's telling you the diagnosis, right? That's Osler. That's the most important clinical aphorism. You listen to the patient, she's not telling you the diagnosis because they dare, they're terrified. If she'd said, yeah, my dad's going to chop me the hatchet, the hatchet would fall in her mind, okay? So having made this breakthrough and, and videoed it, 
I then went to the States, United States, for three months. I went through all the child abuse clinics right across the States, up to Alaska. I went to a conference in Dallas and showed the video and so on and so forth. Um, I went to about 30 different centres. And when I was in San Diego, I rang Sue up and I said, I'm going to have to stop general practice and try and publish this. I was getting enough feedback uh, that what I was doing was significant. And it's a breakthrough. I mean, you go and see a psychiatrist today and they say, you're depressed, we'll give you the pills. No, you're depressed because of something you can't think. Yes, about. why are you depressed, surely, is the key question. You ask them why they don't know. That's why they've come. And you have to find out what it is. So, that, having done that, I then stopped the general practice and eventually was in a position to go to Parkhurst uh, because John Marriott is a family friend, in a sense. Parkhurst, the, um, the big prison on the Isle of Wight. The maximum men. security prison on the Isle of Wight. It was, it, the, at those days, it was the flagship of the uh, UK prison system. And John Marriott's wife was at college with my wife. OK, and John Marriott was the governor of the prison. He was the youngest governor. <laughs> he was uh, an innovative governor, quite a remarkable man, quite a remarkable man. And we, we did a family visit in the February 1991. We came down there. I said, he said he must come and see us. I said, well, the other wife's back at the beyond. If we don't go now, we'll never go. So we went down in February and we were chatting away. And I suddenly thought, I'd made this rule never to work in a large, large institution, you remember. So I thought, well, if I've got John Marriott, I can go and say, John, they're rattling my cage. What, can you stop? So I thought, that's, that's a possibility. So on May the 1st, I came down to visit, to look round. And I walked around the prison, uh, walked around with the medical officer, and I went into C Wing, which was the special unit for uh, particularly dangerous, particularly unstable lifers. Quite a, quite a cocktail. And I walked around there and I thought, these are just general practice patients. These are reminiscent of the people who shuffled around in the back wards of the uh, lunatic asylum. And how many men were on Sea Wing? Maximum of 18, normally about 15. Okay. Carefully selected uh, centrally, some from uh, Scotland, from all over the country. Special unit was it was the chief uh, special unit. So I rang Sue up. I said, "Look, I've got to come work here." <laughs> and, and Sue was just starting a, um, a brilliant career in academia in the Manchester University system and so on and so forth, and going way up. And she came down and interviewed the interviewed the prisoners. And I shall never forget. We were standing in a line. There was me. There was the governor. There was the medical officer. And there was Sue. Right. And uh, one of the prisoners, uh, the Baron on the wing, uh, in a blue jumper, came, diddly, 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 walked straight past all of us, up to Sue, and said, will you let him come? And just for the listeners' benefit, Sue is your long-suffering, rather wonderful wife. So that's how we started. And I wasn't at all sure. I was looking for what they couldn't tell me. And I also wanted them to become independent of parents. Um, because what I'd already established was a parent has two obligations. Bring the child up, bring the child up to be independent. And that's not easy if you haven't been brought up to be independent. And also looking for traumatic childhood events. Universal. I, I spoke to 50 murderers. I spoke to 50 murderers in the five years I was there. Universal. They had been 
well, I can hardly say the, the, the range of abuse and torture that they'd suffered, physical, emotional, sexual, you name it. Ah, oh. and um, they'd been taught and learned, do not trust anyone, okay? Now, I'm going in there, I'm saying, um, I'm stronger than your abuser. If I wasn't, this abuser would eat me. And I'm safe. Nobody's safe. I've never met anybody safe. So that was the barrier. Right, and I, and I guess also, you're the new psychiatrist, so they must have been like, you're not coming anywhere near me. Did you have a bit of that to begin with? Oh, the psychiatrist is a very dangerous person in the prison. You see him for a couple of minutes and you're in Broadmoor. And I mean, they used to tell me, <laughs> I mean, very dangerous. So, oh, well, that's interesting. So I go in there and the prison officer say, uh, you're Dr. Johnson. I says, no, 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 I won't be. I'll be Bob. Oh, you can't be Bob. Oh, oh. so we compromised. I'll be Dr. Bob. <laughs> and one of them eventually said, if you'd said, call me Dr. Johnson, I wouldn't have spoken to you once. I said, call me, Dr. call me Dr. Bob, and I'm on your level trying to work. I'm trying to educate. I'm trying to t train you. We're on the same level. I'm trying to train you. And what I'm trying to train them to do with, with my wonderful video with Lenny, who was my star pupil, um, to sit his mother down in an empty chair and say, hello, mother. He could have said a whole series of things. He said, I am an adult, and he couldn't say it. See? He could not say it. So I said, do you find it odd, surprising, that you can't say, tell your mother you're an adult? Yeah, very surprised. Now I'm on his side, right? I'm on his side, encouraging him to get the frontal lobes going, get the, get the speech center going, which has been blocked off. If he said, hello, mother, I'm an adult, before, that would have been the end. He wouldn't have had another second. Now, in the background to this, subsequently, brain scan evidence of trauma has been established, 1996. You put somebody in a, a brain scan machine, you play them a, a music tape, everything's fine. You play them a trauma tape of the gunshot, the car crash, whatever it was, a life and death threatening situation. The frontal lobes stop working. The speech center stops working, and the man doing it, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, says it's like having a stroke. When you have a stroke, the circulation goes, you can't move. When you have a trauma tape, a life and death trauma, these are only extreme ones, you, you get a stroke for the frontal lobes. Now, he said, you can't speak, you can't talk about it, so he didn't do it. I said, it's physiotherapy. You've got to get them started. You've got to encourage them. You've got to say, yeah, just a bit more, just a bit more, just a bit. And you can do a bit more. For example, with Lenny. Can you tell me quickly what Lenny was in for? Len Lenny was in for murdering his best mate. And nobody could understand it. He couldn't understand it. But we worked out why, OK? Sherlock Holmes to the fore. So basically, I, I started July the 1st, 1991. And by September, I'd got permission from John Marriott to video and permission from the prisoners that they would consent to video. Right, and they all consented to being videoed. Not all of them, but the majority. Lots and lots of them did. Because I knew this was unique. 
what I was doing was actually growing them up emotionally or helping them grow up emotionally. So here he is, September the 11th. We've had four or five sessions up before then. So he knows what I'm about. And he knows I'm on his side. You see, that's the key. I'm a doctor. I'm a member of the staff. I'm the prison staff, etc. But I'm on his side helping him. And I say, right, see your mother down over there. What are you going to say? Now, he's in for murder. He's angry with his mother. <laughs> you can imagine him. No. He says, hello, 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 mother. Have an adult. You can see him struggling. I said, that's a bit of a struggle. And I encourage him. And then halfway through the first day, it's a wonderful 11 minutes. It's made my, <laughs> my uh, teaching career fantastic. So halfway through, he says, right, she's over there, right, right. You're there, right, right. I'll do it, I will, I will, I will do it, I'll do it. And you see him wind himself up. So I want to know what I'm doing. I say, what role am I playing? Because at the back of my mind is all the Freudian rhubarb, <laughs> which, okay. Um, so uh, um, I said, what role am I playing? And he says, you're giving me, and I say moral support before he can finish, but he says power. And that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm giving you the power of an adult in an infant context. Okay. He couldn't say to his mother, stop, don't batter me anymore. I'm going to die. He couldn't say that. Say that and she'd batter him more because it's uh, whatever. Now he can. Here he is in maximum security prison. Friday's mother's going to hit him. She can't get into the prison. There's no way. I have trouble getting into the prison. But that was the breakthrough. Now, once he did that, then his violence, his temper went down. In the, in the, in the February of that 91, uh, he'd stopped his injections. He'd had injections to calm him down. So when I came in and reviewed all, all the injections, I said, how about reducing them? Oh, no, no, don't do that, doctor. No, no, my temper goes, no. That was in July. In September, October, he stopped them himself. And he didn't have any further trouble. That's amazing. Well, he done done it. You call it um, sort of unblocking frozen terror, don't you? So I just want to pick up on two things that you've mentioned, which is obviously um, what has become known in the trade as adverse childhood experiences, uh, which obviously is fundamentally saying what happens to you in your childhood matters, especially if you end up being a very violent adult um, with behavioural problems. But then also the importance of understanding the relationship that person has or had with their parents. Yep, definitely. So are you saying that the job really of a psychiatrist or anyone who works with people in this field is to sort of help the individual to unblock that frozen terror? One small thing. Can I put that in there? <laughs> as much as you want. <laughs> you don't need to be a psychiatrist. You don't need to be a doctor. You don't need to be... But you need to be strong and safe. Now, if you're not very strong, the demon in their heads will eat you. That's the end of you. But if you're not safe, you'll eat them. Now, A-C-E, fascinating. You said has or had, right? I've just written this, another paper, right? And what I'm doing, I go right to the fundamental. What is the mind for? The mind is for sorting out what's going to happen next. Uh, where's the next meal coming from? Is this air fresh enough? Uh, will it continue? Do I have to move to a different place to breathe or whatever? That's what the mind is for, sorting out the problem. As an infant, the problems are parents, okay? 
So you say, um, are they smiling? Are they frowning? Right? That's the number one priority. Because if they frown and frown and frown and frown, you could be dead. If you're brought up in a nice, stable family with lots of smiles, yes, you're a good little girl, good little boy, yeah, fantastic, yeah, you can stand on your own feet, yes, really, right, fine. You grow into adult life and you, look, you trust people. You say, well, uh, I'll do this for you, you do this for me. Into luck, fantastic, right? But, 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 if you grow up in a family where <laughs> violence is rife, uh, mum doesn't trust dad, vice versa, um, they think you're rubbish, they think you're uh, a load of old prob problems, what are you going to learn? You're going to learn that. You come into adult life, and that's what the prisoners did. I call it the prisoner triad. Negative self-esteem, they'd always been taught they were rubbish, so they knew they were rubbish. Negative social skills, they never asked for what they wanted, they asked what they didn't want. Negative futures. There was no future, the future is going to be exactly the same as the past, why would it be any different? So my task, and that of a strong, safe person, is to go in there and say, hey, hello, hi, I'm here, I'm not going to hit you. No, no, I don't believe in that, I think that's awful. I think you're wonderful. In fact, there was one, <laughs> it's called Joe, and he said, um, I think I'm rubbish. I don't think you're rubbish, Joe. He left. He walked out of my office, wouldn't come back. I know he. that probably is the first time anyone has said to him, you know, I don't think you're rubbish. In fact, I think you're pretty great. So that's just what? He just couldn't cope with someone being nice. It's too dangerous. It's too dangerous. So he walked out, but there's a, there's, a, there's a corollary to that. So I'm over in Solent Radio for some reason talking about this. And I said, well, this man, I told him it was rubbish and it wasn't rubbish and... It, and so the following week, he puts his head around the door. He says, you're talking about me, weren't you? He'd heard the radio. Oh, right. It's one small thing. Exactly. It's, it's human to human. Connections. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's what's wonderful about what you're doing in, the, in a sense of one small thing. You must be consistent, you must be safe, and you must be strong. All those things. Now, when you said has or had, right, the adverse child event continues in the head. Right. I had an 82-year-old, right? An 82-year-old. And I've got to, to say, because it's, it's, it's the physiotherapy of the verbal, the words, right? I got her to say, I'm 82, I need my mother to love me. And we laughed. She couldn't laugh before because she believed it or she never verbalised it. Now, once she'd verbalised it, it became clear. But... That's what happened. They're exactly the same. They're frozen two-year-olds. The world, they see the world, they plan ahead as if they're two. And that's why they have tantrums all over the place. So you can see them having tantrums. Uh, yes, you, can't you just? But uh, what I'm so interested in is why is the power of speech so important? Because I think this is where we can fall down sometimes with our services because we don't put enough importance on the value of someone being able to verbalize their their traumas their lives their problems and once they do and i've seen it time and time again like you in prisons and you know you see sort of some of the men go i don't know what's happened but i feel 10 stone lighter and all i did was speak and every time i kind of go i know how can we make more people sort of realize this and that you don't always need massive psychiatric interventions you don't always need pills um, i'm not saying those things are never needed but in the main, 
we could be helping so many more people by just allowing them a safe space to speak. So why is speech so important? Why don't we get it? As I say, I've just been doing this 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 more more fundamental paper, and basically, speech and thought are all intertwined. You can't really. It's futile trying to distinguish them. So you say speech, thought uh, emerge together. And what is the thought for? What is the speech for? Is to plan ahead. You say, well, if I do so and so, this will happen. If I don't do so and so, I can avoid whatever. So that's what it's for. What's so significant about the Van der Kolk test, as I've called it, trauma test, is that they can't talk about the worst thing. You can talk about minor things, but they can't talk about the worst thing. Because if they do, they die, right? And that's, you must be careful of that. I must be careful. Everyone must be careful of that. Because you have to have the right context in which to broach these things. They, they've, they've put the stuff in a box, and they're the only ones who open the box. My task, your task, one small thing's task, is to open the box. It's empty. I know it's empty. They don't. Right. It's so interesting you talk about the box because so many people um, who are treading into this world um, and prison officers who are being trained, um, police officers, whoever it is that we're training, we often hear people say, but we'll be opening a can of worms that we don't feel that we're qualified um, to be able to cope with. And what we always say is it's better to help a person to try and open the box so what would you say to that? Yeah, absolutely. You don't open the box. And you say, come on, do it. Coercion, danger. You don't open the box. There were three murderers in Parkhurst who threatened to kill me because I tried to open the box too fast. Or they thought I was trying to do that. They opened the box. They've shut the box for a very good reason. Dad's going to chop them up with their hatchet unless if you let him out. And there she is, 40. Her dad had died four years before, but the hatchet was going to fall. No, it's not. It's not, no, it's not. Oh, it's not. Right. Now, that's her change. I know it's not going to happen. I can't see a hatchet anywhere there. I know her dad's dead. It doesn't trouble me. But um, she has to see and, uh, as we're saying now, say, goodbye, dad. You can't hurt me anymore. And what I've been doing is getting to hold up their hand. Stop! Stop! I couldn't do it, I couldn't do it. What's going on? There are two people in the room. There's an empty chair. Hold up your hand. Right? It's all to do with, I mean, we're a single organism, so that's why it's, there's no point distinguishing thought and speech and uh, gestures. It's all You're all one organism, and what you do, you do as a whole. So you say stop, and it works. It's astonishing. And so with your work in Parkhurst, you had these men, they were some of them serial killers, murderers, purported to be the most dangerous men in the whole of the English and Wales um, sort of prison system. And tell me about the success that you had towards the end of your time at Parkhurst. The, the success I had was provable, right? And it's proved by the number of alarm bells which are rung. Now, the unit lasted for 10 years, in 1985, 1995, 1996. For the first seven years, on average, there were 20 alarm bells a year. In fact, there's a story 
sotto voce that somebody was killed. Lots of violence. You ring an alarm bell when there's a fracas, when there's uh, uh, problems, when you're some sort of incident, right? 20, right? In the last three years, zero. No alarm bells at all. You can't have no alarm bells and violence. Every violent incident is going to get an alarm bell rung. So that means that for three years, in fact, the last three years I was there, there was no violence. There'd been violence on average 20 times a year, if not more. In the last three years, zero. Unfortunately, the prison authorities closed the unit. Well, we've got to punish, we've got to, we've got to rehabilitate. No. But that was the truth. And I, the more I've looked at it, uh, and, and, and I want to read you this part of this dialogue, because I, I videoed them, as I say, and I, as one man who came in uh, after I'd been going about 18 months, and I never spoke to him except on a video, right? And here he is after two years. And he says, I mean, this is just, I mean, I didn't really review this until recently when I had sort of time of looking back. He says, and you know, my mum on a visit, she said, you've really matured. You've really like suddenly from being a kid and being all teenagery and all that, you just wiped that out. She says, and now you can see the seriousness in your face when you're talking about things. You put yourself across, whereas I know before you couldn't do that. Listen to that. That's the mum. That's amazing. It's almost like, I suppose, what people call arrested development. It's exactly right. It's arrested, arrested emotional development. It is, yeah. Now, he's grown up. He's no longer a teenager. He's an adult. And he's an adult that his mother sees. That's what's fascinating. Because between you and me, that was what was going on. She had him in a grip. She was in a, a violent uh, domestic relations and she clung to her son as a way out and uh, felt for him, thought for him and, and wouldn't let him be. Here, after two years, and he worked very hard, two years hard work, he was a serial killer. When he came, he planned to kill every two years. He was only young and he was going to kill and kill and he would move on and in the middle of prison, somebody wouldn't say good morning the right way, he'd mark them down, he'd plot how to kill them, he'd kill them, every two years. And he didn't want to come to Sea Wing. Get me off this Isle of Wight, he says. You'll have, have to read the dialogue, it's wonderful. Get, get me off this Isle of Wight. I don't want to. And a series of interventions by a very skilled prison officer brought him in, and there he goes. <laughs> One time I went too far and he threatened to grot me. So I went, <laughs> I went to the deputy governor, I says, uh, uh, can you move him? Because, oh, yes, he said, I've got a van going out next week. No, no, move him now. I can't even go down the wing, get a cup of tea. <laughs> so he did, he moved him. The governor moved him to the SEG unit. And I went to see him the following morning under instructions. And he was sitting on the cell bed like this. And he said, uh, I shouldn't have done that. I need to get back to Sewing. I said, well, I'll report to the deputy governor. And he came back and we did that because he, he'd, I'd gone too far. Like I said before, you have to be careful. I can't open the box. And he said, I thought I was opening it too fast. And if he'd opened it too fast, he would die. That's the point. This is it life and death? This isn't trivial stuff. This is life and death issues. They literally think they're going to die. Oh, yeah. And of course, with the hatchets, 
to attack that was on the cards. And, and with a lot of these things, violence is about, they're only small. They can't do anything. They can't run away. Tell me about the medication, because all the men were on quite a bit of heavy medication, weren't they, when you started working with them? And where did you get them to towards the end? When I, when I came in July 91, I said to the uh, pharmacy officer, the, the chap in charge of the pharmacy on the thing, I said, right, write down all the drugs that have been prescribed the last week. Oh, all right then. So I wrote it all down. I added it up. It was 3.5 kilograms of tranquilizer. 3.5 kilograms per annum. And then the following year, I haven't got the data. The, the year after that, the uh, pharmacy in the, the prison pharmacy got computerized. And you can see the drugs are coming down steadily. So in the end, it went from 3.5 kilograms to 150 grams a year which isn't bad even for a GP. And the violence went down at the same time. Now, I think there's a link, because what the drugs are doing is disinhibiting, okay? It sedates you, and they work, there's a lot of evidence they work in a similar way to alcohol. They damp everything down, they calm you down, you know, to gin and tonic sedates, you know. And these drugs do the same, they calm you down, but they don't allow any change because they block the feeling that you need to feel in order to process is that right yes that's right they block the thinking if you're drunk you're not thinking straight which is what you want to do what you're saying really because i think so many people um even on an everyday level if someone's been through a divorce when they were a child their parents divorced it's very painful and scary to think someone's going to get me to talk about this but what you're saying i think is you have to be able to go into that fear and diffuse it in order to be able to move on, right? You can't go around it. Absolutely. It's, it's even more serious than that. You have blocked it to save your life, right? So somebody comes and say, unblock it, what do you mean? You're asking me to risk my life, right? So you have to be in a situation where you provide enough support that they can see that by thinking, like he does there, no longer teenager, right? That's safer for him. Whereas before, it was it was unsafe for him. Before that, he couldn't do that. They, they, they don't have an option. You have to provide the option. Now, let's take the divorce, the parents divorcing. Gross trauma, world falling to pieces, you are not going to survive, right? So somebody comes, so let's talk about it. Oh, boom. I'm not going to survive. And they will use anything. If they're a violent person, they'll be violent. If they're, uh, I don't know, whatever they're going to do, they're going to stop you talking about it. They're going to walk out. They're going to shut off. They're going to do whatever. Because they don't. You're asking them to jump off a cliff. You're asking them to jump off a 200-foot cliff. Your task is to persuade them it's only two inches. Your task is to say, look, I know about these things. Listen to me, I'll hold your hand while you come down. And it's only two inches. I don't believe Try it. Good Lord. And that's where you get the revelation you say. And it's dramatic. It can be very dramatic. I had a, I had a prisoner in, in the Kent prison. I did a lot of prison reports. I had a prisoner in the Kent prison, and I went in his history beforehand. And um, he, he was sentenced to 10 years. The 10 years was coming up. Now, just before 10 years ago, his mother had died. 
He was about 40, but this devastated him. And he was in the gutter drinking and he, he, had, he, he bit one of his fellow gutter people in the nose. He's not allowed to do that. That's against the Edwardian law. So they, they sent him to 10 years. And they diagnosed him schizophrenia, um, incompetent, um, various other dreadful things. And they couldn't let him out of prison without a monitor to help him. And all. Oh, 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 oh. So I read this. I thought, it's mum. It's deceased mum haunting him. So I went in there and uh, chat, chat, chat. And after 20 minutes, I said, um, see your mum in the chair over there. I said, hello, mum. I'll never see you again. I couldn't say that. Listen, listen. I could not say that. Bang. Come on, there's only two of us here. Josh, 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 Josh. Uh, Mum, I'll never see I'll never see it. The world doesn't stop, like you say. The roof doesn't fall in. And then a week later, we go to his parole board, and they're messing about on the parole board, whether they listen to me or not. And we've got, so there's a solicitor, me and him, sitting in a room uh, for hours on end, and we're making conversation. So the solicitor says, now then, uh, if they do um, release you today, what will you do? Well, he said, I'll go down to the job centre and get a job. The solicitor fell off his chair. For three years, he'd asked him that. He said, well, I'll keep myself to myself. Suddenly, he's taking responsibility for himself. Suddenly, he's not being teenagery. Suddenly, he's... Because he's an adult. That's it. Which he hasn't been, OK? Everywhere else, but not in his head. Now... That's one small thing, <laughs> but it's also very big thing. <laughs> You're doing very well on that. And I think people underestimate those, which is exactly why I called my organisation One Small Thing, because it's trying to bring everyone's head back to the place where, you know, people feel empowered to be able to actually make a difference when we've kind of been told that you need to be a psychiatrist or to have 10 degrees in order to be able to help your fellow human being out. And that's just not true. Being empowered to be an adult, that's all. Now, you have to have their consent to do anything. Otherwise, you're being parental. Do this, do that, do the other. That's what parents do. That's what parents have to do because they're looking after children. Now, the children have to look after themselves when they're old enough. The adults have to look after themselves. And you're empowering them. And when you talk about medication... You're not a fan. The vast bulk of medication gets in the way. As I say, in my latest, in my latest paper, I, I, I go for the, for the, for the uh, concept of validation. Am I doing all right here? Uh, what would you say about this? Uh, are you validating me? Are you validating what I'm doing? And it's mutual. I can validate you, you validate me. Drugs, psychiatric drugs, stop the validation. Well, it doesn't matter anymore. What? What? It's crucial. That's all you need to do for right across the psychiatric spectrum is validation. They come in, they're depressed. Why are you depressed? Well, because I can't tell your mother I, I need to grow up. So that when you can tell them, but tell your mother you grow up, the depression goes. Look, you're in a situation, you're grown up, you can't say so. You've got a problem, you need to grow up, you can't. You're going to get depressed. There's no solution. The solution is say, goodbye, mum, I don't need you anymore. I couldn't do that. I'd be dead. Yes, that's true if you were two. It's very interesting what you're saying about children. And obviously, as a child, you look to your parents to stay alive because as parents, we're constantly stopping children from, as you say, falling off the wall, falling into the sea, falling off the boat, falling out of the car, whatever it might be. We have to feed them. We have to keep them alive. And I have... Um, uh, an eight-year-old and a six-year-old and a five-year-old and the six-year-old and the eight-year-old are definitely going through that phase where they're talking about death a lot and me and my husband are like 
why is this happening? And then I'm talking to other parents. They're like, oh, our ch children are doing the same thing and becoming a bit more clingy. And it's almost like it's because they're getting to the age where they do understand that people can die and they're becoming conscious of the fact that their parents might not be there sometimes for whatever reason, or we might die or something awful might happen. Um, so it's just very interesting putting those two things together as I'm watching my children grow up. Absolutely. I mean, as a general practitioner, as a family doctor, I had a lot of experience with this. And you'd get teenagers coming in, got trouble. So you say, hang about, in four years' time, you'll be on your own. You'll be making your own decisions. And you can have a six-year-old. You can have a six-year-old, right? His um, mother, it was a single mother, and she'd overdosed on heroin and died. So in come the grandparents, who, again, I've treated over the years. They've got this six-year-old. He's up at uh, 6 a.m., doesn't go to bed till midnight. You'll have to send to the clinic, doctor. You have to send to the clinic. We can't, we can't cope. I said, well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I've got this special clinic on a Wednesday, OK? Ask him to come to that. So he came in and chatting away, chatting away. Uh, 20 minutes, and I say, uh, would you like to come next week? Oh, yeah, yeah. Comes next week, chat away, chat away, chat away. Three weeks, like this. And the fourth week, he starts messing around. He says, I said, what's going on? It's over. What? It's over. What, what's over? <laughs> what's happened? He said, you were the only person told me mum wasn't coming back. She's with Jesus, she's on holiday, and it's all his fault. Suddenly mum's not there. Why? They can only were an unreason. And um, I must have said, I mean, I, you must have said, well, when did she come back? And I said, well, I'm sorry, laddie. Uh, when people die, they actually don't come back. That's one of the things about death. And so in your case, with, with, your, with, your, with your children, they suddenly start joining. You say, well, actually, uh, we're very important for you now. Fertilize it. We're very important for you now. But in 10 years' time, you'll be making your own decisions. You'll be flying or whatever. So just yeah. give them a, 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 a verbal... Scaffold. Yeah, because I think often we try and protect people, don't we, by not being honest because we're scared. We don't want to hurt yeah. people's feelings or we think we'll hurt them more by saying something when actually you're doing people untold damage by saying something like, oh, they've gone to sleep. And then you wonder why your child's got a sort of sleep disorder. And it's like, well, you've just told them someone's gone to sleep and they haven't woken up again. Actually, they're dead. You know, it makes sense when you unpick it. Another interesting thing that you um, have said, which I think is very interesting, is that personality disorders are actually perception disorders. Oh. What do you mean by that? Well, if you look at personality disorders, this makes me very cross. In 1980, the American Psychiatric Association changed the rules. Wrong. <laughs> they said it's... <laughs> we won't go into the technical details, which there are a lot. If you did what they said in general practice, you wouldn't last two minutes. But anyway, so they said, it's nothing to do with talk. Just imagine that. So it's to do with drugs. We're going to use drugs. Um, and so they invented something which never in my, up to that point in my psychiatric training was ever mentioned. Personality disorder. Personality is something you're born with, okay? So if it's disordered, it's a disorder of genes. Absolute rubbish. Contradicts all what we've just been saying. Personality disorder is, is a misnomer. It's, it's an antinomer. It's, a, it's, it's garbage. <laughs> <laughs> it's garbage, and it's dangerous garbage. Because you go in there and say, well, um, I'm a multi-personal personality disorder. I'm an antisocial personality disorder. I'm a this, that personality. No, no, you've just been badly trained. 
like one of the one of the prisoners said, uh, "I'm just a badly badly designed machine." I said, "No, you're not. You've just been badly trained." And I mean, nobody's ever said that to them. Well, you're rubbish. You're dangerous. You're 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 scum. No, you've just been badly. Every human being is capable of delight. Rule number one: You're not feeling delight. You don't believe me, but that's nevertheless my creed that everybody. So therefore, let's try it. Let's do a joke. Let's move through. Listen to me when I say you're not garbage. Listen to, listen to me when I say you're not a broken machine. Listen to me, you've been trained wrong. And that goes back to the childhood. What did you learn in childhood? Well, I learned that you have to hit first. No. Listen. Talk. In fact, in fact, Alec, the, the man I was talking about with the, the serial killer, he said he got married at 18, had everything he wanted, washing, taking care of all the, everything, but he could only talk with his fists. He said that. I can only talk with my feet. What? You're not going to get anywhere doing that. And they talk with my mouth. And, that, and that, again, it's all the same thing. It's talk. It's talk. So when the American Psychiatric Association in, in 1980 said, we're going to go right in the opposite direction to talk therapy, that was fatal in many ways. And, and now the psychiatric establishment is so big and the, uh, the psychiatric association is so wealthy I was reading a book the other day. They had uh, a, a turnover of 10 million. They took this decision to go in with the drug companies. Now we've got a turnover of 70 million. I had a case in Dublin that turned on the difference between um, the DSM, that's the book we're talking about, and the ICD-10, the World Health Organization. The case turned on that. So I studied the DSM very carefully. And, and, and it, it does not add up. They, 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 even it's not even consistent in itself, and, and uh, so when this case came up, I contacted half a dozen people I know in the states, saying, "Give me uh, feedback on the the law cases that have already come up." There haven't been any. It's never come to court because the American circuit, the APA, pays them off. It has never come to court. It's appalling, and, and, and I don't know how to change it, because uh, I, wrote, I wrote this academic article for the leading psychiatric journal saying, let's look at the ICD-10, let's look at the DSM, and compare the two. Chapter and verse, chapter and verse, chapter and verse. Just like that, an academic exercise. Not, not, didn't even send out for review. They've got to the top of the tree, and my task is to tell them it's the wrong tree. <laughs> but when you say personality disorder, I wince. It's a perception disorder. They perceive the world as they did when they were two. They perceive the world as being in the hands of other people, dangerous people, powerful people, people who have to keep them alive, as you say. They stay alive by keeping in with parents. Rule one, keep your parents sweet. At the age of 82, keep your parents sweet. What? 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 Everybody knows the age of 18, 16, and 21, you should go from adult, child to adult. And the parent's job is to encourage that. That's the second obligation. Bring the child up, bring the child up to be independent. And you can see the importance of that. So then when we look at general violence in the prison system as a whole in our country, sort of forget C-Wing for a minute and the extremes of um, the people in there, you know, I guess we're looking at a sort of big cohort of people who've had, on the whole, fairly unstable parenting. Invariably, invariably. Right. And then when you're then put into a sort of hyper-masculine structure, 
um, and institutions where the framework of control and authoritarianism is there, you can see why it's the sort of, I mean, a sort of really dangerous sort of mix then of um, those childhood traumas being sort of unearthed, but there's nowhere for it to be caught in a safe way. On the contrary, it's made worse. A prison is a coercive situation. The remedy is to get their consent and take responsibility for themselves. Morning, noon and night, they're told exactly what to do all the time. A most antisocial situation you can imagine. So what I managed to do in, the, in, in Parkers, I have to tell you that I'm very proud of this. I go in there, it's a maximum security wing, a maximum security inside a maximum security wing, right? Heavily um, staffed and all this sort of stuff, violence all over the place, right? So how do I do consent in a coercive context, right? So I just set up an appointment system. I said, right, uh, will you come and see me at 11 o'clock tomorrow? Go, oh, can't. Nowhere to go. It's a maximum security wing. Okay? No problem, right? One man walked around for nine months. Come and see you tomorrow, fat chance. Come and see you tomorrow, fat chance. He wanted to see if I wrote it in the notes. Treatment resistant. The patient won't behave. Right? Nothing like that at all. When I said, do you want to come? That was his decision, not mine. So how long did you keep asking him for? Nine, nine months. And then he said, yes. I said, what? Because <laughs> he decided that it was his decision, not mine. So then he came and he sat for six months, every week. Oh, and the stuff he got out. He's, he's upstairs on the first floor and his father throws him out of the window. His father opens the, the, the lower drawer and it's full of guns. I mean, you know, ah. And then the same man, he said, hmm, he said, if I'd been talking to you, I'd have killed three times in this wing. So I said, what? Three people? No, just the same one. <laughs> and it was a little squit he was going to kill. All right, it was a squit, but you don't kill little squits. You know? But he said he didn't do that because we'd opened the box. Or rather, he'd opened the box. I'd said, there's a box there, and he told me. So he told me all this stuff, which he'd never told anybody. And I'm interested to know, when they first came into the room and sat down with you, can you say a little bit about how their physical body language changed from coming in and being all... Because, you know, so many people talk about mental health like it's separate to one's physical health, which it clearly isn't. And it's one in the same, and one impacts the other, of course. So can you say, paint a picture for the listener as to how these men might have come in on day one and where you got them to physically? Yeah, I mean, the, I, I'm a doctor, a member of the staff, a uh, member of the prison staff. So they come in and they don't know any different, right? So they're guarded, they're uh, shrunk, they're, they're tight. You can see it on the videos. And then gradually, as you say, they blossom. If you're being successful, they blossom. But the point was that... After I'd been there 18 months, a kind of village atmosphere developed. And they would say, oh, don't tell me about your sex abuse, go and tell Dr. Bob. And, and then I've got a halo. They come in and say, ah. And that's, ah. It's just amazing to do that. And then were those men able to start supporting each other a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I mean, they suddenly started... Well, first of all, they stopped hitting each other. There was no violence for three years. 
Um, and and uh, you read what, what Alex says in there. He says, he says, uh, big Jim, you know, we haven't, I don't know if you know, but we haven't spoken for nine months. And I went up to him the other day. I said, we're in this together. We 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 get on. You say something. I'm not going to. If you say something, I'm not going to get a weapon. I'm just going to tell you. I don't like that. That's what come mature civilized behavior. Now yeah. that was exceptional circumstances where I had a major personality, shall we say, input on them. So when it comes to sort of shifting the dial on uh, when it comes to services for men, women, and children, and understanding fundamentally that you have to understand what happened to them in order to be able to help them with their future and unblocking these frozen terrors. Why is there so much resistance, do you think? I mean, I think we've come a long way from where you were in Parkhurst in the, in the 90s, did you say? But why do you think there's, on the whole, quite a lot of resistance to that? Is it because actually the people who hold the power maybe, you know, need to unblock a few of their own traumas in order to be able to see it. I think, I think it's a combination. I think that last one is probably very, very significant, but it's invisible, so I can't go there. It's also tradition. Tradition is people have done wrong, hit them. No, they've done wrong because they've been taught, taught wrong. And the latest thing I've got is that in their mind, they've got a mixture of scenarios, none of which make any sense. There's, there's dad saying this, there's mum saying that, and then the policeman doing that. They, they can't sort it out. So you give them a chance to sort it out, and they can sort it out. So there's partly the fact that the people in power are already blocked, and I don't fancy unblocking them. People used to say to me, people used to say to me, well, why don't you go and treat the Home Secretary? I said, I don't think he would consent. <laughs> and you have to have consent to start with, right? So that's so that's the, the first thing. And the second thing is the, the 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 tradition. Nobody's ever done it. It doesn't work. And I have to say too that there's a medical tradition. For example, again, something I just uh, recall: when we were medical students, we used to say that when the doctor diagnosed psychopath, that meant they they were untreatable. <laughs> So if they found somebody who was untreatable, instead of saying, well, I don't understand it, they say, well, he's a psychopath. Right. So it's just people basically saying, I don't really know what to do with them, so let's just say they're untreatable because that makes me look better. And that's what you get now with, uh, uh, I mean, psychotic symptoms. I'm, I'm interested and I've, I've treated psychotic symptoms and uh, it's very important to treat psychotic symptoms in a different way, right? I told a series of psych psychiatrists this and they don't want to know. They've been taught this way of doing it, and I'm saying, just a minute, try this way. Oh, they don't. They don't. They haven't got the courage yeah. to try something new. The resistance to change. Resistance to change, and they don't. So it's not only frozen terror, it's current terror. <laughs> yeah, and you call sort of mental ill health a software problem as opposed to a hardware problem, which I think is a really nice way of describing it because it sort of paints a picture for people, you know, and it makes you feel like everybody is able to change. Everybody is. What they taught me in Parkers was that they, everyone is born lovable, sociable, and non-violent. That's how they're born. They get all the, those three contradicted, or not. Right? And where they're contradicted, it's your task and mine to reverse it.
Hello, you're lovable. Oh, no, no, no. You think so? Sociable. Hello, I like ch chatting to you. Let's have a bit of a smile. Right? I'm not going to hit you because that doesn't help anybody. And, and the whole question of revenge. Uh, Fred hit me a long time ago, so I'm going to hit you. How does that help? doesn't help at all. Oh, yes, I've got, to, I've got to get it out of my system. No, no. Get it out of your system by thinking it through. And that's what Alec was doing. He was getting the revenge out of his system. He was killing all these people for revenge what happened to him. His stepfather or father, whatever the details, would have been violent to him. He couldn't hit him, so he had to hit everybody else. And it was such an intense situation that he hadn't just to hit them, he had to kill them. So that's how he planned, killing them. Well, if I'm killing them, I'm getting ahead. If I'm, if I'm killing them, I'm getting a, a, above what I suffered before. No. Stop being teenagery. So tell me what happened to those men on Sea Wing. How did things sort of come to a conclusion? They were dispersed throughout the system. I wasn't allowed to follow them up. I wasn't allowed to visit them anywhere. Why was it closed down? I don't really know. I got a letter. So the writing was on the wall and various uh, politically savvy staff had moved off. And I thought, that's a bit funny. Because one particular man was a brilliant uh, officer, had uh, moved from the SEG unit, which is normally the, the queen of the situation, into Seawing, which was a great compliment because he thought that's the cutting edge, which it was. And then he moved on because he read the runes, he read the signs. Uh, I didn't want to read them. I wanted to stay there. <laughs> when, when I heard that these two were ideal candidates to come, had been refused on spurious grounds, I resigned. I wrote a letter to the Guardian and I said, uh, uh, this is shocking and I'm not uh, sustaining it anymore. Uh, and I had sort of two minutes of fame to, <laughs> to back that up. But uh, it was tragic. It was absolutely tragic. And I think actually, uh, historically speaking, uh, they then instituted a series of what they call DSPD units throughout the country, dangerous and severe personality disorder units. I think there were eight of them. Um, and uh, they didn't know what they were doing. I visited one or two prisoners in, and they had no idea what they were doing. They, they, they didn't consult me at any point. And um, eventually the Sainsbury Medical, Mental Health Centre did a review and said they've wasted half a billion pounds. Because what they did was they just filled the letter of the law instead of the spirit. They had these separate units, no idea what to do. Rather, as when Seawing began, they didn't know what to do. The first five years, first seven years, they just trundled on the only way, fill them up with drugs, fill them up with drugs. No. And when I arrived in 91, from 91 to 96, 91, I initiated a totally new, different way of doing it. And some of the officers didn't like it. <laughs> one of the officers stood up at one of the lunchtime and he said, well, I've known Tommy for 20 years. He'll never change him. You're wasting taxpayers' money. And sat down. And then he moved off. Because you couldn't do stuff, could move around the different wings. And he couldn't take it. He didn't, he didn't want, he didn't believe it, and so on. And then Tommy changed. Not as far as he was concerned. But, but you know, that's, that's, the, that's what we were talking about the inertia before. Uh, change, tradition. Uh, he was a traditional uh, prison officer. You're there to look after them, stop them hitting themselves where you can, stop being hit. But no real key to unlocking why they were doing it. So going back to what you were saying about the type of person that can do this work, 
you know, you were saying that you have to be sort of safe and kind and empathetic, but I think people sometimes worry, particularly within the prison system or within services, that maybe it's too much to take on yourself. If someone comes out with the most unbelievably traumatic story, how do you get yourself into a good place and a robust place to be able to hold someone's pain? Well, the first thing I would say is, if you've got a blind spot, you can't help somebody else with the same blind spot. So if your dad was horrid and you're talking to people whose dads are horrid, you're not going to say that. I mean, Freud's classic, right? Freud's dad was horrid. And anybody who goes to see Freud with a bad dad, forget it. You're sorry. Okay. Secondly, don't go anywhere near this without support. You need a, I'm say, a shoulder to weep on when you come out. You shouldn't need to weep, but you, should, you need somebody to support you. Can I talk about something? Can I discuss this? This is happening now. I want some friends. Possibly go in with two of you. You have to trust each other, and then the people will see you trust each other, and they'll start trusting you. If you feel their pain the way they do, you can't help them. It's like you've got a broken leg. You can't help somebody with a broken leg. You have to have a good leg to help somebody with a broken leg. So if you're feeling their pain, and they say, and then he did this to me, and then he did ah, ah, you say, yes, but it's all in the past. You have to have the confidence to do that. So yes, yes, I, I hear, and I see you weeping. I see the tears, but in fact, it's all over. You don't think it's all over, but I do. Something like this. So if you, the stress and the pain that you're feeling is wrong. It's gone wrong somewhere. Right. And and over the space of your career, because I think that comes with experience, doesn't it? Absolutely. The time, and you learn, and certainly I've learned over the years of working in prisons to sort of detach a little bit. And before I go in sometimes, depending on what I'm doing in that prison and who I'm talking to, I kind of, I don't know, it's not like I give myself a verbal talking to, but I sort of consciously get myself into a slightly different gear um, to be able to take on whatever the day might throw at me. So did you find the same thing throughout your career? At the beginning, did you find it more difficult? But then by the time you got to Parkhurst and you're dealing with serial killers, did you find that actually quite easy in a professional sense? Well, two things about that. First of all, pain. As a doctor, you see people in a lot of pain. And if you don't inure yourself to that, you can't help them. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I'm going in with a task. I'm going in with a crossword to solve. This person is suffering from something which doesn't exist, okay? <laughs> how do I explain that to him? How do I find out, first of all, what it is? Because he's not going to tell me. And then how do I convince them that it doesn't exist? So all the gross trauma and torture and stuff that comes out, it's yesterday. Don't go in until you know that, until you're totally convinced of that, totally confident that all the dreadful things they're talking about, and they are dreadful things, sorry, were dreadful things. They're no longer there. He's sitting there, you're sitting there. It's not happening, except in his head. This goes back to the axe lady. The axe is about to fall, not really. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. So once you've got a task to go in and say, well, this person has killed half a dozen people. They want to kill me. They want to do all these things, right? 
It's an illusion. There's something driving them inside which they can't tell me about. My task, and I've got a task. I, I mean, I keep myself safe, of course, but I've got a task which is to find out where it's coming from. That's why I printed out Alec. I print out his dialogue describing, first of all, he doesn't want to talk to anybody about anything. And then having talked about it, what difference it's made to him. It's, 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 it's a challenge. It's, it's, it's a job. It's, it's not a, a, a weeping heart. It's not saying, oh, dear, poor thing, and nothing like that. Uh, and, and if you're feeling pain, if the person doing the operation <laughs> is feeling the pain, that's wrong. Because the person going in must know 100% that the pain this person is talking about is yesterday. OK, but what about... So we're predominantly talking about men who um, have killed, and we know that predominantly men are more violent than women, and they predominantly do the majority of the killing, um, sort of in a national sense, I guess. So what about you're working with a woman, and you're saying, okay, you've helped them unblock some frozen terrors of their childhood, and that might be um, sort of rape and sexual abuse at the hands of an uncle or a father or whoever, but they have an abusive partner outside the walls. Do you have any experience of, um, and what would you say to that sort of, you know, you can't say to that woman, well, that trauma has gone, because actually it hasn't. When they leave prison, they will be going back into environments where men will take advantage of them and potentially hurt them. Why, why, why does that happen? Well, I guess it happens because... That's what they expect. That's what they expect. The world has only got abusive men. There aren't any others. For them. That's what head. they've been taught. They go out to an abusive partner, and, and they do. I mean, that's what happens. Because they want to. They have no alternative. Your job is to give them an alternative. Right. And of the two, and this is happening in the prison to a degree, the base trauma that happens when they're two, when they're six, that's the base trauma. That's bigger than any other trauma that ever happens. The other traumas come on top of that and they, and they don't help and stuff. But they're ex in a way, they're expected, which is quite wrong. But that's, that's to do with the base trauma is the worst. And further, if you can deal with the base trauma, if they can deal with the base trauma, if you can open their box, they can see that this man out there is just a, a waste of time. Whereas before, he was the only person who paid any attention to them. Dad abused me, showed me, loved me. It's crap, right? But that's what they learn. So then hubby abuses them or partner abuses them. Oh, well, that's because he loves me. No! Hello! I, I, when I went on my tour of the Estates with the, with the, with the 30 different centres, there was, this, it was a place in, in, in Los Angeles and said, the woman writes across her forehead, punish me. <laughs> Wrong! I mean, that was written there by her parental influence. And you can undo the parental influence or you can persuade them to undo the parental. It's called learning, right? You can teach them emotional education. But it's there until it's removed. Yeah, so then flitting back over to what you were saying about the brain and the fact that the brain, they talk about neural plasticity, don't they? And neural pathways. So the neural pathways that are formed during the early years, 
are you saying that actually because of the plasticity of the brain that those neural pathways can even though it's hard sometimes they can be changed absolutely absolutely i mean take any other you can suddenly change your mind you suddenly say oh the sun's come out or whatever it's going to be oh i tell you what i can do this career not that one oh if i do this i dramatic change and that's exactly the same with this oh i don't have to be abused all my life right because they do i had one one woman who's she finally rang me up and said you're the first person who said i was lovable right now she wasn't a criminal or anything she was um a very frequent suicide person but nobody had said that she was lovable so that's a pathway if you want uh, I wouldn't go too much on the on the, um, the the neurological pathways, except as the the brain scan shows that they close down with trauma, and you're opening them up. And what's more, they would close down as you're talking to them. So I'm talking to the axe lady for 33 sessions, and I say, "What about your child?" Yeah, <laughs> nothing. It's closed down. And then eventually, happily, with, with the various factors that were shown to him, uh, she said, oh, I'll have to tell him. So she told me. And once she told me, I knew what the problem was. Until that point, I didn't know. But the pathways in her thinking, really. And it's probably not... There must be a physical representation of thought, but it's, it's, it's dangerous to go too deep down that. Um, it's much better to talk to them and say, how can you think about this? How do you say this? And the skill that I developed over the years is to listen for the hesitations. Okay. So they say, yes, I, lo I love my dad. Uh, what? What, what? What was going on behind there? So you're like, oh, I love my dad. It's quite different. And so then you tease it out. You say, well, what, if you sit him down there, what would you say to him? Ha, ha, hello, dad. I love you. What? What? You know? <laughs> and it's wonderful because you're dealing with human minds, you're dealing with human beings, you're dealing, and, and, and they're so resilient and they're so delightful. I mean, they really are capable of, of, of creativity and, and it's just absolutely astonishing. So what is your hope for the sort of, a big question maybe, but what's your hope for the medical profession or the psychiatric profession um, when it comes to trauma? You know, what would you... What would you ideally like to see available for people? Well, I would go even more than that. I want the medical profession, especially the psychiatrist, saying it's all trauma. On, the, on where we started, you're growing up in a family. If the family is secure, reliable, <laughs> regular, and validates you, you think, well, that's what the world's like. There are bits over here I don't understand, but... Generally, I'm all right, and you plow on. If you're in a situation where you're no good, you're the boom, bang, bing, bong, bing, bong. That's going to give you psychotic symptoms. It's going to give you depression. It's going to give you, and they said, personality disorder. It's going to give you a whole series of mental problems. Sanity is peace of mind from a stable social situation. Everybody can have sanity if you get that thing right. Lovable, sociable, non-violent. That's what everybody wants. So I guess that therefore within our services, for those people listening who might be working in services, helping people, the services have to emulate that, don't they? You need the trust. You crucially need the stability 
and the stability of the group, the group will start at this time. It will always run on a Tuesday. You know, it'll always be in this room. Would you say that that's an important factor? Because oh. that's certainly something that I've seen, you know, in prisons. It's like, well, it can't happen this week, maybe, or there's an emergency, so something else. So we've cancelled the group. The group's not starting on time. So actually, that's undermining everything that those individuals so desperately need. Truth, trust and consent. That's the, those are the pillars. When I was working at Ashworth, maximum security prison in the north, I said, right, eventually, right, I will be here 11 o'clock Monday and 11 o'clock Thursday unless I break my leg. If you're not regular on time, you're not reliable. Are you telling the truth by saying I'm coming at 11 or are you fooling? Can they trust you that you're coming at 11? And will they consent to trust you? And if they don't do any of those three things, you've lost it. And you're dealing with people who have never trusted anyone. Trust is a foreign concept. Trust is a dangerous concept. You trust somebody, they'll take you for a sucker. And you don't have to look very far to see that. But that's what's happened all the way through. So it can be uphill. But that's where you're going. You're going for a stable, civilised adult. What you've got is an unstable, uncivilised toddler big and therefore dangerous, but also accessible. If you can find the right way in, you have to find the right bond, the right relationship, the right... But you're absolutely right. This group will be at 11 o'clock or Monday and Friday, whatever it's going to be, that's it. And I said to them, I said, well, I'll be here 11 unless I break my leg. Which could have been difficult, I come in a wheelchair. <laughs> but... Um, you're absolutely right. Reliability, because they don't see anything else. They don't hear anything else. I'll be here, oh, yeah, mm, yeah they all say that. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, you know. So you, you're establishing trust, and you can tell them that. In fact, I did. I remember, I remember this uh, group in Ashworth. I ran a group in, in one of the Ashworth wards. And one of the chaps says, uh, it's all very well, this truth, trust, and consent business, uh, but all these officers keep coming in. I, I don't consent to that. <laughs> Right. So I said, oh, you know, it's wonderful. Uh, I said, well, um, let's work it out. I said, um, we, we haven't been closed to uh, Kabul. We have to, we have to have some access. So we'll have two, two people from each shift, only the same two people every time. Will that be all right? Oh, all right. See. And then the next week, next week, he says, I never told you when I was four, my mother hit me with a broom handle in the kitchen, broke my leg. I couldn't move. I was on the floor, and the dog came and sat next to me. And the chap in the group next to him said, hey, I've known you for 10 years. You've never told me that. See? Because the week before, I'd said trust is important. So therefore, he opened a, a, a window in his mind, opened the box. Nothing as, as curious as human beings. You've got to have absolute confidence that inside there's a live human being who wants to get out. Whatever they've done, what, whatever. I mean, this serial killer. Oh, and the other, the other thing is, um, I started off one of the papers saying that murderers never can't tell you why they killed. And somebody said, well, that's curious. They were, did a documentary on Nielsen and he killed 26 people. So they said, uh, why did you do it? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You don't have to do it, laddie. Oh, yes. Well, I'll just do it. I, it's what I do. No, 
if you can get in there, it's just one small thing, really, isn't it? Well, exactly. And Dr. Bob, on that sort of bombshell, um, I just want to say thank you so much. I always leave um, discussions with you feeling like I can sort of take on the world and change everything because you managed to put it in such a sort of succinct, straightforward way. And it seems so obvious, really, actually, when you're discussing these topics with you. So thank you so much. Thank you for having uh, shared so much with me, actually, yes, today, but over the years as well, because I've been so fascinated in your work for such a long time and you've been a huge inspiration behind one small thing as well. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much and thank you for that. Thank you. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for One Small Thing by the London Podcast Company. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.